0: Oh yeah, yeah, something like that. yeah. Cobern on the curveball, Caminetti, big time play, throws from his oh, that's what a every time he does another one. We thought he's made his all time best and
1: unbelievable. We talk about star hanging, unbelievable throws. Look at this from the seat of his pants, and it's a strong throw unbelievable unbelievable even to this day what an amazing throw by ken caminiti good uh, good to have everybody listening to this podcast it's the check your brain podcast wherever you are listening to this whether it's on patreon whether it's uh which is five bucks a month you get early access to guests like this uh gentleman right here or if you're listening for free wherever you get your podcast comes out every wednesday and i'm pleased to bring in my guest we are going to talk about the man we just mentioned there which is ken caminiti and uh Uh, the, the man who's with me right now is Dan He's the author of playing through the pain, Ken Caminiti and the steroids confession that changed baseball forever. Uh, Dan, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So one thing, uh, my pinned tweet on Twitter is why I think baseball or sports in general seem to be a lot more fun when you still had the Marlboro man on all the scoreboards or like for example, at the Houston Astrodome or the uh, old uh, Jack Murphy Stadium, they would show the Marlboro Man. And, and I'm not ju- justifying smoking or anything like that or tobacco use or promoting it. I just think that in the time that it was going on, it seemed more fun. And Ken Caminiti played during that time. and you start, start to see the uniforms, the uh, where they weren't white uniforms, they were like a tooth colored. And, uh, 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 you know, th- this is the Astros are kind of going away from the Rainbow, the orange rainbow uniforms they had—it was just so much. It just seemed like so much more of a fun time in pro sports, and especially in baseball. But uh, because I look at all this stuff on social media, and the algorithm pops up, and your book came up uh, as a suggestion to buy and to look at, and I'm like, this would be a perfect podcast because I love talking about this. I was obsessed with someone like Ken Caminiti, and um, you know, I I guess the, the the first question is before we really get into the nitty gritty about his life and his career and, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the rise, the downfall, everything like that, you know, were you a a fan of his, were you a fan of the Padres or the Astros or what was it that got you into doing this? And what made you get to that point of saying, gosh, you know, there hasn't really been any literature written about this guy other than a couple of sports illustrated articles at the time.
0: Really good question. I, I adored, baseball of the nineties. I kind of, you know, got into it, just as you said, I mean, the nineties were such a fascinating time. You had the strike, you had Cal Ripken streak, you had the home run records, you had so much energy Wild card era baseball was changing, you know, and this was a really interesting time for baseball. And I loved Ken as a fan. Uh, I just really appreciate the way he played. You know, you had other players kind of asking out, uh, taking days off, um, you know, uh, taking it easy at times, loafing, this guy played harder than almost anybody you'll ever find. And I just appreciated and respected that. I mean, you look at his 96 MVP season, and he played with a torn rotator cuff through most of the year. He's getting food poisoning in Mexico and hitting home runs. I mean, he was just doing things that Uh, it didn't seem human. Obviously, you know, looking back now we can, you know, pinpoint a couple of things he was doing, but um, at the same time, he just had this grittiness that I really appreciated. And, you know, he, he stood out to me among the nineties players and for him to come forward in sports illustrated in 2002 and talk about steroid use in baseball and kind of blow the lid off on steroids. And then for him to die so young uh, two years later, it just really stuck with me. Uh, It really stood out to me. And, you know, I I remember I was in college at the time when he passed away and I wrote a column about it and it really moved me, really moved me when he passed away as a fan. You know, I I never met him, um, but I always felt like there's more there. And as my journalism career picked up, uh, I was actually working overnights in 2012 and I had a lot of free time. And I said, you know what? I think it would be interesting if There was a book about Ken Caminiti and I just assumed someone else had written one or was going to write one and this was kind of something that uh, scared the heck out of me for the better part of a decade saying you know what if somebody tomorrow comes out and says they have a book coming out about this guy it kind of blows up my whole spot but uh, I just for the first year or so just was researching his life reading about him you know, watching clips like that, uh, that play for the for the Padres against the Marlins uh, when he's throwing the guy out from his butt and and just recognize that there was more here, that there was, a, there was a real book here. And, you know, I started interviewing people in 2013 and it, you know, slowly snowballed from there. That's
1: amazing because you mentioned you were in college when he passed away and I was in high school. And thinking about those days of people that, you admire growing up or you watched and you find out they're no longer with us. When, when you're of that age, you're not used to seeing a professional athlete. It's one thing if you see an old actor that passes away, but you have an athlete that just turned 40, essentially, is already gone. You hear about the details, you know, speedball, New York City, everything like that. Uh, but it was kind of shocking because, you know, we and, and since then we've had people we grew up with that that have passed away, whether it's football players like Steve McNair, tragically, or Tony Gwynn that you mentioned you wanted to uh, interview for the book. Um, but it was one of those things where you're like, wait a second, the, the guy that... Now, I think a lot of us knew that Ken Caminiti was not a Hall of Famer, but you knew that there was a lot of trouble around it and that this was such a quick and tragic ending. But what you lay out in your book is that Yes it's tragic. It seems quick to fans but this has been a lifetime of whether it's abuse from drugs and alcohol, sexual abuse, that there was a lot going into this that it's almost amazing that he let lasted that long when you start reading the book and you start understanding about his entire life story.
0: Yeah. I I completely agree and you know I even look at the high level of play he was playing at throughout all of these struggles, through all these off-field struggles, through the addictions, through the, the problems he had off the field, he was still playing at such a high caliber. That really told me how special of an athlete he was, that even when he was struggling with addictions and other problems, he was still performing. He was still a really good major league player. Obviously, he was a lot better when he was clean. And, uh, you know, when his, his personal life was more straightened out, but you're exactly right. I mean, and that was kind of the, the devastation, you know, that you learn as, as I, you know, continued working on the book was, you know, people want to blame it on steroids and people want to blame it on this or that. But this had been the seeds of his destruction had been set up long before and date back early, early, early in his life. And it was really sad to peel back those layers and recognize how far back the, the, the trauma in his life went, and how, how far back, uh, all those problems went.
1: Yeah, this is, this is not, certainly not a story where you hear about somebody that, uh, all of a sudden tried cocaine, for example, and then a couple of, you know, give it a couple of weeks, couple of months or a full-blown drug addict. This is somebody that had been doing this for a long time and struggled throughout his entire career. And, you know, on the field, off the field, everything like that. Um, I'm going to share the screen right now because I thought this was fascinating about thinking about his career. Because I, when I started getting into baseball is when he was uh, starting to have his rise. So uh, for folks watching on the video, I've got uh, – let me move us here. Um, so you see he comes up in 1987 here. He's got three home runs, uh, you know, he's hitting 246 and he's kind of up and down uh, back and forth between AAA. He starts becoming more of a, a, a full-time guy as you start to hit the 90s. And, you know, look at, I mean, you look at these stats, three home runs, one home run, 10 home runs in 89, four, he's struggling to find a place. He's playing shortstop, playing third base, you know, just trying to stick around on the team. And then you get this like Okay, so you see what he's kind of he's a guy he's gonna hit you maybe like 270 260 something hit you about like 10 and 15 home runs a year. then you start to see 94 his first all-star season 18 home runs then 26, then 40 and you're like, uh oh um looking back now we're kind of like oh gee, well, that uh, sounds like this makes sense right now but at the time you're seeing a guy that had been playing for a number of years before this massive rise. And that he was just kind of I don't want to say mediocre, but he was just he was a solid serviceable third baseman. And then, boom, all of a sudden he's an MVP. And basically what it's laying out and the admission was, yeah, it's because he was training really hard in the gym and doing a little bit of a little bit of illegal substances in the gym.
0: Exactly. You know, I look at his 1994 season. You know, this is after he got clean. He went to rehab for the first time. He was. Working out more frequently, he hadn't started using steroids at this point. So he was still clean on a PED standpoint. He was an all-star for the first time. He had 18 home runs in the strike shortened season, probably would have hit in the low 20s in terms of home runs in a full year. Um, you know, I, I look at that as a good reflection of the kind of season he was capable of as a clean player. Uh, but then you look at 95, 95, he started experimenting with steroids for the first time. And 96 was the first time he used them all season. You know, when you look at his power numbers through his Padres days and they are, you know, 26, 40, 26, 29, that's a huge thing. Even in 99, he he only played a partial season in 99 and still hit 13 home runs. You know, he was he was really um, a power hitter in a way that he wasn't earlier in his career. And it was jarring, you know, it was jarring looking at the, the difference from one to the other. Um, you know, and, and the other flip side of it is that he should have been getting recognition for his defensive play earlier in his career. His 1989 season on defense was a standout season. He should have won the gold glove. Uh, he was far and away the best third baseman in the league. And because he kept getting overlooked, I, I think it fueled that sense of frustration for him. Like, what do I have to do to get recognized? you know, and it really took for him to start hitting home runs before people started giving him awards. And, you know, that was kind of the hypocrisy of it all that, you know, he finally started using steroids and then everybody's getting all this attention in these mm-hmm. awards. It's like, I've been here, I've been playing, I've been busting my butt, you know, and, um, but no, you're exactly right. I mean, he became a different kind of hitter, uh, power hitter in a way that he wasn't um, in his earlier Astros days. I've heard what's interesting is when you look back to the steroid era and we go through this around this time,
1: we're recording this in late December and the you get to the Hall of Fame ballot and and then eventually I think in a what a couple of weeks or something they they're going to put out who is really going to the Hall of Fame for yeah. 2023 yeah. and you start to look at it and it's always the biggest conversation it's great for sports talk radio but you say who can make it are the steroid guys yes or no now again we've we admit that Ken Kamenady either didn't play long enough or had two short of a peak in order to make it. That's why it's kind of a fascinating story because not everybody who was doing steroids is was bound for Cooperstown. There were a lot of guys that were trying to do anything they could for whether it was their family. And you go, okay, well, that's cheating. You say, yes, but understand why they were doing it. A lot of guys were like, look, if I don't do this and get this pension and get the, the health care for my family, and if I can get away with this without getting caught, then we're going to be set for life. Otherwise, I'm selling cars. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working at a, at a hardware store in a couple of weeks, or I'm being sent down and making really bad money and uh, being in AAA and may never get that opportunity to do this again. And someone like Ken Caminiti that, again, not a bad player, very solid defensively in his early career, but it, it he must have had that situation where he had to look in the mirror and say, if I don't do this and I don't do this now, they're going to cut me. I may play for a couple of teams. They might give me an opportunity, but I'm seeing all these other guys are starting to experiment. The Consecos and Lenny Dykstra and everybody else in the world. I think you, you got to make that, you got to make that jump. And for somebody who has already, has already been an addict and had already been dealing with this, uh, was that a difficult decision or was that a pretty easy decision for him?
0: It was not a very hard decision. Um, so he had been given, steroids by fellow teammates or people around the game in the early nineties. And he didn't use it then, uh, 91, 93, 95. He kind of explored the possibility of using steroids. Uh, he and Chris Donald's in 93 were researching it a little bit, but he, he didn't feel like he needed it at the time. He was still in his twenties. He was still kind of on the rise in terms of his physical ability, uh, or maintaining. And by the time he got to 95, especially, uh, you know, he was making a lot of errors in the field. He was throwing the ball away. Padres didn't have good first baseman that year, and he just kept making throwing errors. He wasn't quite the player that he wanted to be. And, you know, after the age of 30, he had his contract up at the end of the season. There was a lot of things happening there. Additionally, at the end of 94, he, he lost a lot of power. So his his power numbers actually slowed down after the All-Star break. And I think the rigors of a a 162 game season really kind of started wearing on him physically. So he recognized, I think, that he had lost a step or was going to continue losing steps. How can I counteract that? How can I get the contract to help my family? He signs a three year deal and then it's that self-fulfilling thing. So, you know, he has success with it. So let's keep doing it. Um, But in terms of you know, in terms of the stigma, you know, it kind of goes back to his earlier days of he was always around people, you know, even dating back to his high school and college days, his friends, some of his friends had pursued steroids themselves. So there was never a big stigma. I think people look at steroids just as cheating in baseball. Um, you know, I, I think for Ken, it was just a chance to play his best and help his team to get the contract he felt he deserved and to um, continue his career as long as he could. And I don't think there was any malicious intent there. I don't think he was, you know, there were people around him, including his wife, who, you know, weren't happy about the prospect of him using, but he wasn't looking at it that way. And I think it was a chance for him to stay on the field, especially in 96 with his rotator cuff. You know, the, the two options are use steroids to stay on the field or not use steroids go on the disabled list and then the possibility exists of you backsliding on your addictions further. You know, so it's this, you know, it's a really tough thing. It's a really difficult thing uh, that he was forced to confront, but I I don't think he looked at it as uh, cheating necessarily. I think he was just trying his best. And to your point earlier, I mean, middle infielders, middle relievers, fourth outfielders, most of the guys who are using steroids, You know, we're not your all stars and some were and some, you know, took it to that next level, but most of them weren't. They were just trying to survive, hang on another season, get the contract they needed uh, to secure their financial future and just, you know, just trying to hang on as long as they could. You, uh,
1: yeah. When we played the uh, right there, yeah. uh, the Florida Marlins when Greg Colburn hit the ball down the line and he throws from the seat of his pants, it's one of two plays my dad and I always talk about is uh, that play and Jim Edmonds over the shoulder diving yes. catch at Kauffman Stadium. And uh, one thing that it, just like with you that drew me to somebody like Ken Caminiti growing up was it was that feeling of a reckless abandon out there. And I think a lot of people love that grittiness of a player. There are certain players who who would do that. They'll crash into walls. The problem is that stuff starts catching up. And Ken Caminiti was a guy that I remembered uh, countless. I mean, there's probably YouTube compilations. People can go back of him diving for balls in the hole. And there was always a difference where you would see an Ozzie Smith that would dive and he would always have that quicker or, or Omar of a to a quick pop up and throw, throw him out. Ken Caminiti is like falling all over the place, just diving and you look back and why guys you know people like Andy Pettit and others had taken some kind of steroids or PEDs or trying to repair rotator cuffs or trying to repair something in their knees something whatever and you just see this guy that's just diving all over the field would never have a clean jersey it seemed like and i really enjoyed watching some of those players that i don't necessarily see as often uh, maybe guys are a little bit more cautious. Maybe the money's there. And that's the other thing I want to get to is talking about the money here in a little bit. But uh, you go, you have a player that plays like that in the 90s. Now you're getting to a point where these guys like McGuire are hitting the ball 500 feet almost every time he's hitting in the third deck, every single time you've had Ken Seiko hitting the ball into the sky dome. You've had, now you're starting to see Barry Bonds is going through the same situation where a lot of his contemporaries like Sosa, like McGuire, like Ken Seiko are all hitting bombs. Uh, Ken Caminiti ends up having one of his teammates, like Greg Vaughn hits 50 home runs in, in 1998. So, you almost have to look at everybody else around the league. You're like, I grew up, I I was in the same quote unquote class as these players that you almost had to, if if, if, because it's funny because I think a lot of us like to think in hindsight, go like, I would, I would have played clean. You don't know that. You don't know that in, especially in that time, you're talking about the mid nineties when you're finally seeing players making the money that a lot of those guys that in the eighties, that if they did have that opportunity, they may have done it too. Uh, the money was just exploding by the 1990s, and again, if it was between going back to AAA, making the the league minimum, or you get a massive contract in the mid 90s and stick around with the team for a while, you know, it's it's not as uh, it's not as difficult a decision, I think, for a lot of these players.
0: Now, as a fan, I went into that whole topic, saying steroids are bad, steroids are wrong. You know, kind of looking down on anybody who used. And the more you talk to those players, you know, one of the people I interviewed was Richie Lewis, a pitcher who has since passed away. He pitched to Florida State and was kind of a journeyman throughout his major league career. You know, when he was facing his second Tommy John surgery, Uh, he wanted to come back. He wanted to pitch again. And he felt like, you know, using steroids would help him get back on the field. You know, I don't I can't blame him for using. I, I can't blame a lot of these guys for using um, you know, and I think it's such a disingenuous argument to look at the sanctity of the game and the Hall of Fame and who should be in and out when we've had dozens of players from the 90s and early 2000s who are now in the Hall of Fame. And we don't know. We really don't know. All these players were forced to confront this situation themselves and make a decision that was best for them. You know, kudos, congratulations to the players who didn't use. I wish all of them weren't facing those same pressures and could just say, I'm going to let this go and see how far my natural ability takes me. Um, But when you know other players are using and getting the contracts and getting the all-star selections and MVP awards in Ken's case, like, yeah, I'm going to try the things that he's trying because it seems to be working pretty well for him.
1: Yeah. That 1996 season. So you go, he goes to the Padres. He's in that massive deal. I remember that massive deal. Was it a three-team deal? Was that Padres? It was,
0: it was just a two, but it was 12 players. It was, it was huge.
1: It always seemed like in those days, the Tigers, the Astros and the Padres had this weird deal where I'm seeing like a Phil Plantier go here and yes. Brad Ausmus go here. And, uh, 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 Andujar Cedeno, and all these other players, it seemed like they all played for the same three teams in those yeah, years. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Caminiti goes uh, from Houston, his years over in Houston, goes over to San Diego. And then by 96, yeah, that 40-home run season, um, he hits the home run in the All-Star game at, uh, at the Old Vet. And you just see, basically, the Padres were always kind of a team that plotted along, I always remember, that uh, Jack Clark played for them, briefly and criticized I mean if there's a if there's a player you didn't criticize on the team it was Tony Gwynn and Jack Clark famously came out and said that Tony Gwynn only cares about Tony Gwynn Tony Gwynn only cares about hitting 350 330 they don't win games it's just as long as he keeps winning batting titles uh they had some talent Gary Sheffield was a near triple crown winner in 92 Fred McGriff played for them for a long time uh Tony Fernandez you had uh, Bruce Hurst uh but they just they just they would have talent and they would be at best mediocre. Well, then by the time you get to 96, Ken Caminiti season puts them almost single-handedly in the playoffs. And then that carries over and creates that culture that helps them carry that into 1998, where they do finally make it to the world series an unprecedented run. Even Granted, they got swept by the Yankees, but it was be- a lot of it was because that Ken Caminiti was that staple at third base that they didn't have to worry about that position, a, a position that seemed to be in flux for a long time for the San Diego Padres.
0: You're exactly right. You know, I think that 96 season helped that team believe that they could do more. You know, the new ownership group that came in, you know, they were really focused on community and reconnecting, and they they started to bring in players who could contribute and make a difference. You know, and, and that 96 season helped them to believe even with the downturn in 97, you know, they felt like this team was going to win something, was going to do something special and gave them the momentum to go out and get a Kevin Brown, you know, and build the team from there and, and make the changes necessary. And, you know, without that World Series run, without that pennant, you know, the, the vote to approve Petco Park might not go through. You know, there's a, there's a lot of dominoes that might not fall if Ken doesn't have his 96 season that really reestablished the Padres and put them on the map uh, for at least a couple years. years. It's, it's truly incredible that 98 season where it was because it was a lot of random
1: players The the, the Padres, they didn't have a, a many, um, homegrown talent. I mean, you're getting, you're siphoning off from other teams and you get your Steve Finley's, you get uh Wally Joyner at first base, Kilvio Varis at second base and, uh, you a know, pitching staff at Mark Langston, you had uh Sterling Hitchcock. So, n- it was like a win now situation. And then right basically that right after that outside, again, outside of Tony Gwynn, the team ends up faltering and the pieces and parts go away. And eventually, you know, Ken's downfall starts really happening after that season. He didn't have the greatest World Series. Well, none of them really did either. Um, but then, yeah, he plays, he goes to Houston again, plays for Atlanta, he plays for Texas. And then that's it. it. You go from 1996, you're the MVP and you're one of the best third basemen in the league to. Yeah, though Ken is retiring. Like he's retiring. He just won the MVP. It seemed like a couple of years ago, but now that we know, now that we, you know, we've done the research and you've uh, put it in your book, talk about that time after the, because it, it seemed like it was such a slow rise for him and then a quick drop off. So that peak there, not what you would say. Probably say his career peak was about ninety four to ninety nine, but ultimately the peak season was ninety six. And then you just kind of saw it going downhill pretty rapidly. Talk about those years, his final couple of years in the league, and what was going on because he did have some run-ins with the law around that time too.
0: Yeah, he was really starting the struggle. Um, you know, his addiction started to um, – he backslid on his addictions starting in 97. You know, as he was repairing his shoulder, he went to the ESPY Awards in New York – and, um, you know, was drinking there and, you know, just continued to backslide in his addictions from there, surrounding himself with the wrong people. You know, I think there's a, a sense of, um, with him, with all the success he's had, you know, I think there's that sense that you can handle it yourself, that, um, you can rise above it. And he really couldn't, you know, he struggled with that and he, uh, struggled throughout the 98 season. You know, he was facing a lot of emotional turmoil and personal struggles, You know, that all really came to a head um, throughout that year and then into the World Series where he was struggling off the field. He was struggling on the field. Things weren't right. You know, after the season was over, his wife wanted him to come back home to Houston. Felt like that would be a good place to reconnect with uh, Bijon Bagwell and, you know, you know, come back to a community that really cared for him. You know, he even got an offer to get signed by the Tigers. You mentioned the Tigers. Tigers really, really wanted him. And he turned down a lot of money to go back to Houston, you know, and uh, it just wasn't a good homecoming. It wasn't a good fit. You know, there were too many hangers on around him. There were too many distractions. Um, you know, he continued to struggle with addiction and he was playing pretty well here and there, but he wasn't playing <clears throat> consistently, you know, and and he would miss long stretches of time with injuries. Uh, he fell out of a a dare stand when he was hunting and hurt his back. There were just a lot of bad things happening in his life, you know, and then he went to rehab after the 2000 season, which was cut short uh, because of his struggles with addiction. And there he met a uh, woman, Maria, who he, you know, was dating off and on for the remainder of his life. And, you know, he tried to have that comeback in 2001 with the Rangers and the Braves. It just wasn't working out he felt like he could still play and could still contribute, uh, but then he was arrested soon after the season in a Houston hotel room, and and that was really it. I mean, no team was going to take a chance on him, and that was a really difficult thing for him because he still felt like he had something to prove. He still felt like he had something in the tank, you know. And then to confront the reality that this is over, you know, and and that was a really really tough thing for him. And you know, from there, you know, rehab. Uh, court hearings um, you know the the way that his case was set up you know he had to continuously uh, take drug tests and he would he would test positive and then he'd go back into custody and it was just an embarrassing thing because he was trying to move on with his life and trying to make the most of things and yet everybody's, recognizing the problems he has it's all out in the news it's all public and that was really difficult because it really made it tough for him to move forward and to confront his addictions head-on you know when when you can't even escape the public eye you know because of all the things that are happening it was just a really difficult time and you know there were little glimpses of light and opportunity he went back to um to Qualcomm for the final game there in 2003. And that was a really proud moment, but it was a, you know, kind of a tough emotional moment for him. Like he was kind of having panic attacks. Cause he was worried about the way that the San Diego fans would respond to him. And they, they adored him. They loved him. They gave him a standing ovation, you know, to the point where the Padres wanted to bring him back in 2004 and in spring training, they did bring him back as a, an instructor for spring training and it just wasn't working out. He was using again, he was in a bad place and things just kind of continued to, to slide downward. You know, he had people in the game who wanted to help and reach out and give him a hand and lift him up. And it just wasn't, uh, it wasn't working out. What kind of addict was he? I, I know people who've been alcoholics have been
1: on drugs that the moment they smell alcohol, they're drunk or it's somebody who drinks all day or somebody who binges to the point where it's just it's over a weekend. It's a few days or it's just one of those where, you know, I need eight drinks in front of me right now, like. What kind of because this had been a theme through his career, was he one of those where if you talk to him, chances are he's probably drunk right now or he's probably on some kind of substance or what was it? Was he somebody that could keep it together as long as he can? And then when he could, you know, let his guard down, then he can really do like what what kind of person was he when he would take it to these excesses?
0: It was kind of that letting his guard down thing. Like he was good with it for a while. You know, even I go back to 96 when the Padres win the division and, you know, they're pouring, the teammates are pouring alcohol over his head. Like he wasn't drinking then, you know, he was still in a good place. He's taking his friends out to a steakhouse uh, to Morton's afterwards. Like it was a really special time for him and he was in a really good emotional place. So he wasn't being pulled in that direction. But then when that flip gets, that switch gets flipped, like everything just turned and, you know, it would start with just little things here and there. Oh, I can drink a little bit. I can drink a little beer. And then it would just kind of filter into other things. And and really, you know, earlier in his career and then later in his career, you know, it became the up and down. You know, when you're playing, you have to pick yourself up. You know, maybe you have a, a, a road trip, maybe you have a late night into an early morning, you know, so then he'd use a grainy to pick himself up, you know, and then after the game, you know, he would have to take, you know, painkillers and other substances to get him through the game. And then he would have to come down after the game was over. So he'd drink, but then he'd want to keep drinking. So he'd do cocaine, then he'd keep drinking and then he'd wake up feeling, you know, horrible the next day and he'd have to pick himself up again. So it was this endless cycle, you know, baseball as a career made it really tough for him to confront these addictions and it encouraged his addictions in some ways. You know, you think of, you know, sharing a beer in the clubhouse or, you know, taking a pill to pick yourself up. And a lot of players could do these things and not worry so much about the ramifications. But he wasn't like that. You know, he wasn't going to just do it every once again. He was going to do it all the time because it felt good for him. You know, and then later in his career, he was uh, he was actually taking GHB before games, which was really, really scary. Um, You know, that's like the date rape drug. And he was he was you know, taking, drinking little capsules with fluid um, to mellow himself out before games. Hmm. And it just, it was just a really bad situation. Um, seeing that up and down and and recognizing that, you know, I, I think a lot of his teammates, you know, would see him with the beer occasionally and not think much of it because beer's everywhere, you know, so be it. You, you don't recognize that this guy's sliding in his addictions and he's doing other things. And, you know, it's really tough to contain that. And, you know, I think the players in the clubhouse did the best they could to police that, to help him. But, you know, he was his own person and, you know, uh, made some decisions that uh, were really costly.
1: So he wasn't one of those where the stories, you you know, we've heard about the 1986 Mets where Daryl Strawberry and, you know, there's cocaine, there's women, there's drinking, there's this and that in the locker room, like in, in the game, like, or Keith Hernandez there I mean there's he has admitted that he would go back and they would pull out girls in the crowd and bring them back and have a quickie in the locker room and then go back on the field. Is one of those things where uh, o- oil can Boyd said in 1986 that he wasn't sober for any one of those games. And obviously we all know the doc Ellis story and, and others, but so he did what he could to keep it together for the game. It's not like Mickey Mantle, where he would have a six pack before. Which I talked to Cleet Boyer uh, many years ago, over 20 years ago in Cooperstown. And he said that, Oh, yeah. Mickey would have a six pack before the game, six pack after the game and maybe a six pack during the game in his bat bag. And but it seems like Ken Caminiti was somebody that when he wasn't on the field is when the problem started. It was like was was playing baseball his saving grace that if he wasn't playing baseball, that his life may have tragically ended even earlier.
0: It's a good question. You know, I think in some ways baseball was a refuge that when he was between the lines and he was playing, um, there was more balance, there's structure. You know, I think in general, uh, his baseball career brought some structure to his life, you know, because, you know, he had people, you know, telling him where to be and he had to be at a certain place at a certain time and awake at a certain point. You know, when we didn't have that structure, it made it really difficult. You know, when you have no expectations, no accountability, nowhere to be in the morning, and you don't have to be ready for anything that makes it really tough to pick yourself up and i think his playing did offer some level of accountability for him and structure for him that was helpful in some ways that's
1: uh, it's and it's just sad how just 3 years after he's playing he he ends up dying in new york talk about the death talk about what went into it uh that he had i think was it just a couple of days before he died he was already there was another Situation, like was it a violation of uh, probation or something? I I don't remember what it was, but uh, there was something that happened that he tested positive once again for cocaine, and that's the big thing. Is it's it's one thing if you test positive for marijuana, where it stays in your system for weeks or, or a month or something. Cocaine stays in your system, what, 48 hours at most, which means you just did cocaine. And if you're testing positive, it's because you're coming off of a possible bender or whatever the case is. So it's it's really tough when you go through a situation like that. Talk about those final couple of days leading up to his, the end of his life.
0: It was really tragic. You know, he did test positive. Uh, he was, he was uh, brought into custody again and decided to plead guilty to the drug charge that he was facing, which he could have continued to plead not guilty and continue to fight it. And it would have eventually been um, erased from his record. Uh, But he decided to plead guilty because he was just tired of the The testing, he was tired of everything. He just wanted to move forward with his life. And, you know, there were people in his life who wanted him to do different things, whether that be to go to Montana and work on the land, whether that be go to an intensive treatment program in Mississippi, you know, maybe go to California where he had some friends and support networks. And he decided after his court hearing that he was going to go fly from to Tampa and then to New York with Maria, his off and on girlfriend. Uh, because her son had been dealing with some struggles himself, uh, getting in trouble with the law, and he wanted to go and talk to him. You know, he kind of also just wanted to go and escape. And New York offered him a chance to escape. You know, he wasn't anybody that people cared about. He was just some guy in New York City. And uh, he went there uh, at the against the wishes of a lot of people who are trying to urge him otherwise. Flies to New York, meets with the, the kid. Um, you know, and they have a brief conversation, doesn't really go very far. And then he was just kind of hanging out with other people in Maria's orbit, including her ex, uh, who he was friendly with. He had met him previously and, uh, he, he went to the ex's friend's house in the Hunts Point section of the Bronx, um, you know, ends up, um, you know, his heart just stopped. He collapsed, he fell over and, you know, there were a lot of emergency rescue uh, workers, fire people who tried to save him and it just didn't work. And and that was it.
1: So tragic that he dies in the Bronx, essentially the shadow of Yankee Stadium, the place he made his first and only World Series appearance.
0: Yeah, it's it's tragic, you know, a couple miles away and A lifetime away you know it's six years removed from the world series you know you think this guy's playing on national tv for the championship in yankee stadium and six years later he's dying in an apartment in the hunts point section of the bronx it just it's really difficult to grasp that and to think about the uh journey that led him there and and the reality that i recognized is that he could have died anywhere you know he could have died anywhere at any time with anybody happened to die very randomly the way he did. It just, it was just really tragic and left so many unanswered questions and um, just sadness, you know, it was, it was a shocking thing. And, you know, even in death, he was kind of looked down on, you know, Christopher Reeve died the same weekend. Here's Superman dying and Ken Caminiti and everybody's saying, oh, Superman, he was a hero. He did his best and Ken struggled with addiction. So we looked down on him. And I, I think that was that was a shame too. I mean, he, even in death, was looked down on. And I just, I don't think that's fair.
1: Yeah. And he kind of, because you think about not only just Christopher Reeve, but you think about what was going on at that time, right around, you know, in that area was when juiced came out and the hearings and you're seeing Raphael Palmero do the, he's pointing at he's like, well, I did not take steroids. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you're suspended uh, because you test positive for steroids. And then the McGuire mm-hmm. situation and Sammy Sosa and it just—it was so sad because—and I know you're like me—that we grew up on late '80s, '90s baseball, and it just seemed by the mid-2000s, we were just getting like us fans from there. It's like either we were lied to, or you're just cutting us out at the knees by saying oh yeah, by the way, remember the 98 home run race? Remember all those things? Remember Brady Anderson in 96 and Ken Caminiti's season? Yeah, it was all for naught because everybody, uh, no matter if they actually did steroids or not, we're just going to label that entire era, just the steroid era. And if you liked it, well, it's because you watched a bunch of cheaters. And I'm like, no, I kind of liked it. That's what I grew up with. And it just, it, it made me sad around that time. But Ken was the first guy really that came out and said, I did steroids. And I, here's why I did them. And when you started hearing about others that, you know, McGuire eventually came out and years, years later would say, okay, yeah, I did it. I did this. And you're like, gee, we didn't know, you know, the, the guy who's hitting 700 foot home runs and has adult acne all over his face. We had no idea. <laughs> but uh, you actually had somebody who was honest about his addictions and what he was going through. And told you it told people in sports illustrated and looking back, it's very, it's truly refreshing as to why he came out and did it. And then when you started hearing the the Jason Giambi's of the world, uh, David Ortiz had been implicated and everything. And now he's in the hall of fame. So we don't know in a lot of those uh, uh, players that some of them, uh, I think Sammy Sosa even said a couple of players who are in the hall of fame are dirty but because they had a really good reputation in the media that they're not getting uh, as much, you know, blowback as some of the other players would. Um, But again, Ken Caminiti is not somebody you would think of going to Cooperstown other than being a visitor like you and me. However, his is such a cautionary tale. And I guess the, my last question to you is looking back at his legacy, because as you said, that he was afraid of going back to, Jack Murphy or Qualcomm or whatever they were calling it that year uh, and going back there and uh, how he was going to be the, the reaction towards him or Houston or some of these other places. But I think as time has gone on that mentioning his name, we remember that play that he made it uh, down at pro player stadium. We remember the this, the home run off of uh, Rick Honeycutt and we remember a lot of these big moments that he had and you kind of just go like, and, and I think as time has gone on, we've softened our stance as a, Uh, as sports fans on looking at that era. And because maybe it's a couple of reasons. One of them is that we're starting to induct people that probably aren't worthy of going to the hall of fame. And another is look, everybody needed some form of competitive advantage. Everybody does that. What do you think? Why do you think guys chew tobacco and, and, and dip? It gives you a little bit of a buzz, a little bit of a kick. Isn't that a performance enhancer is coffee a performance enhancer. So you start looking at the morality of it. And in my opinion, I think more people start looking back at his legacy and going, yeah, no, those were fun days. And he should be celebrated and not denigrated.
0: Exactly. I mean, when he was playing, he was celebrated for playing all out. He played it the right way. He His uniform was always dirty. He was scrappy. He was gritty. All the things that we appreciated about him, I don't think those go away because he used Performance-enhancing drugs. I think they were a reflection and byproduct of the time in which he played, and the the things he would do to play his best or play all out. You know, I think I think we need to recognize that at that time there was an off-balance competitive advantage uh, for players who wanted to use those drugs, and you know, it was it's difficult to reconcile that and. and reflect on the fact that some players were using some players weren't the fact that we'll never know who was and who wasn't other than you know a couple of the cases and some of the Mitchell report findings um but that was a small glimmer that was a small piece of it you know uh Ken came forward unflinchingly I think he deserves some credit for that uh you know when Jose Canseco started to come forward right around the same time Ken did it was to sell books it was to um you know to burn Major League Baseball to the ground because he had an axe to grind, because he wasn't getting another job. You know, so there was, there was different motivations. Obviously, Jose Canseco's accusations have turned out to be largely accurate. Um, uh, but you know, I think Ken's uh statements carry more weight because of the fact that he wasn't trying to gain something. He was trying to come back and, you know, and kind of correct the record a little bit and and set his story straight and, you know, let everybody know that he wasn't trying to hide anything, you know, that the um he had no more secrets, you know, it was time to move on with his life. And, you know, I think, I think we do need to celebrate that and and celebrate the person he was, you know, recognize how flawed he was, but recognize the great person he was. And, um, well, and, I'm, and
1: I'm gonna- one thing we didn't get to is the mental illness that he was also a pioneer in, Talking about his mental illness that was more taboo in those days, where you you know if you're a guy you play a guy you play a man's game and you have to man up. You can't talk about your your personal problems and your childhood trauma and addiction and everything. That was something that's like, look, no, you're a man, you don't do that. Well, nowadays you—it's very—it's uh, very common to have sports psychologists. It's very common to talk to somebody about some issues, especially especially a lot of overbearing fathers that got you into being getting into the pros, and you forgot that you didn't have a childhood. You, your emotions were suppressed, and he was a guy that all part of that process was getting the mental aspect. It wasn't even just the the physical or the chemical aspect; it was the mental aspect of trying to get yourself onto the field every day, p- try to play as many games as you can in a season and do so knowing that when you go home that you're going to have to come to grips with your, your childhood and your past.
0: Yeah. No, he was, he was trying to escape for a long time. And um, you know, I think over the years it's been, you know, 20 plus years since he's played, it's been almost two decades since his death. You know, I think we've come a long way as a society and understanding better PTSD, Trauma and the role it plays, and addiction and the opioid epidemic. I, I think the issues that he faced are very relevant today and important. And I think that the dialogue around them has changed a little bit, in part because of people who've struggled like Ken. I, I think uh, it's important for us to uh, to recognize the issues he was dealing with, the efforts he made to try to better his life and improve his life, and um, you know that. You know, so many people struggle with the problems he did who aren't famous baseball players, you know, but they they deal with these things silently. And um, these are pervasive across our culture. But, um, you know, I think I think his struggles um, allow us a window into um, something that we can all learn from and and better understand others who are struggling, too.
1: Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And it's a, it's, it's a great book. It's a cautionary tale. The book is called Playing Through the Pain, Ken Caminiti in the Steroids Confession that Changed Baseball Forever by Dan Good. Dan, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, and doing this podcast. Uh, I'm assuming, you know, what Amazon is where we find the book.
0: Yeah, Amazon and anywhere that books are sold.
1: And uh, where can we find you on social media if we want a little bit more information or any other projects you have coming up?
0: I am on Twitter at dgood73 and I'm also on Substack DanGoodStuff at Substack.
1: Excellent, Dan. Thank you so much. This is fantastic, and let's uh, we'll, we'll sell a couple more of these books, and hopefully, it it for baseball fans. It probably puts a better light on somebody like Ken Caminiti and and others from that era who probably were going through similar situations that we don't know about. And it's a it's a it's a very good read for a lot of people because it's it's a cautionary tale. It's not even just a baseball book. And that's what's that's what's very fascinating about this. So Dan, thank you so much for doing this.
0: Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure.